Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a podcast about making work better. Hello, hello, I'm Bruce Daisley. Thank you for listening. And uh, I'm, I'm always grateful for your attention here. We've had some good episodes over the last few weeks. So if you if you do enjoy this, I would invite you to go and check out maybe the, the episode about diversity and inclusion with Kim Scott, or maybe the episode with Scott Galloway, where he talked about his reflections on how work's going to change. Last week's episode was also a, a real hit with people. And that was going behind the scenes at Amazon. The, the idea of single-threaded leadership, I thought, was a really compelling one, just really interesting. And, and in fact, um, one of my friends texted me saying he'd, he'd found some of the other things that Amazon did intriguing as well. It landed on the day that Amazon had wriggled out of a colossal tax bill, and someone texted me or tweeted me saying, oh, you've missed the elephant in the room, the tax bill. Look, I, I get the fact that corporately, these now a system where this totally egregious tax dodging, where most companies don't believe in paying tax. It's a systematic thing. I think it doesn't forgive Amazon. In fact, I think Amazon's tax avoidance is shameful. But I, I still think we can learn lessons from businesses, irrespective of how their financial regime is or isn't paying tax. So look, yeah, it's by no means an endorsement of all policies, but I think, you know, the reality is we, we probably can learn from firms, even if some of their practices aren't to our liking. Right. Today's episode is another semi-topical issue. So I've been really intrigued in these discussions that have been taking place over the last few weeks and months. And in fact, almost years of firms wrestling with the idea of their workforce becoming activists, active, having political opinions. We saw it a little bit a couple of years ago with the Google walkout where um, variously between a, a, a third and a, and a quarter and a third of their workforce walked out in protest of something. And we've, we've seen it latterly in the last few months, firstly with a tech firm Coinbase who announced to their workers that they weren't permitting any sort of workplace politics and discourse anymore. And then latterly two weeks ago when Basecamp announced to their employees that from now on politics was not permitted inside their their own internal communications tool. They, they create communication software, so they, they use their proprietary stuff. Anyway, they came out and they said it was no longer permitted. And it's 
kicked off a huge snowball effect. Effectively, they said that issues of diversity and inclusion were now going to be just the responsibility of the person who was the leader of that. They weren't going to invite discussion on these themes. And effectively, they said to people, if you don't want to do this, you can pay to leave. You can be paid to leave the company. Well, Alongside the way, they edited their statement several times to, I think, clarify and clarify their opinions and, tr- and try and remove some of the anxiety that it had created. It had become this huge, this huge Twitter trending topic. I mean, it was being discussed for days. There were some fantastic articles about it, and I've included one of the the best articles. If you want to catch up on this, I've included it in the show notes. I think it's from The Verge. And it just gives you a real perspective of what's going on. The really intriguing thing is journalists who spoke to the people who worked there said this wasn't even an issue inside the company. The company was 68 people. The committee that was being set up to debate these themes um, actually had only just convened. It, it wasn't even active. There were no issues going. It felt like a storm without a storm. Clearly, the optics weren't enhanced by the fact that the two people making the decisions on this were two white guys of a certain age who... You'll, you'll have heard of Jason Fried and his he, co-founder of Basecamp because they've written five books on workplace culture. They've, they've, you know, they've been on this podcast. They've, they've been one of the companies that I've talked about when I've talked about the, uh, the companies who do remote working well. And they'd been out really saying that they'd solved work. And so for them to make such a spectacular misstep that a third of the company took them up on the offer to, to be paid to leave. And effectively, they've gone into sort of silent retreat. They've, um, they've tried to reduce the amount they're talking. They've declined interviews from people. They're clearly in a, a, a problematic zone. That's why I was really taken with some of the articles that I read on this topic from today's guest. So I found myself um, reading a lot, a lot of things to try and make sense of this. And obviously, it's, it's such a live issue alongside some other firms who've wrestled with the same themes. And, and I was really taken with the articles of Megan Wrights. And Megan is a business school professor. She teaches at the Holt Ashridge Education uh, executive Education Centre, sort of Ashridge, people used to know it as. And uh, she's also a, a published author. She writes a lot of articles about leadership, about dialogue. It's it's a really brilliant chat. Along the way, we discuss some work by Jonathan Haidt. So Jonathan Haidt is a very well-respected US academic who wrote a, he's written a series of, of, of really big books but the he's written a book called the righteous mind and a couple of years ago he wrote a book called the coddling of the american mind and the the idea of the hypothesis of the coddling of the american mind is that he'd observed that children who were born after the or who were at school after the year 2000 were substantially less able to handle adversity when it came to dialogue discourse discussion now, I have to say, it's a really convincing book if you only read the book. And I've found myself utterly convinced by it. And it's not not least, it's helped by the fact that it's been sold via the medium of podcasts. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about the audience of, of podcasts. The people who've interviewed him have all been 
people who were either millennials or Gen Xs. And so as a consequence, there's this habit that generations find ways to to pour scorn on those generations who've come after them. I found myself sort of reflecting on that famous Douglas Adams quote. And, and Douglas Adams made a comment, I think it was in one of his books, about the order of things. He said, anything that's in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary. And it's just a natural part of the way the world works. Anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary. And you can probably get a career in it. Anything that is invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. And I guess by extension of that, you want it you want it destroyed. And that's what you can't help feeling about Jonathan Haidt when you read anything adjacent to what he's written. But it's incredibly popular. So I found myself listening to a podcast last week with someone who was the very first guest on this podcast, Richard Reeves, Professor Richard Reeves former advisor to Nick Clegg for his sins. But apart from that, he did have a respected and lauded career. He's, he's been an advisor, a, a, someone who runs a think tank, and now he's an academic in the US. And it's a brilliant discussion. I've put it in the show notes between Richard Reeve and Jonathan Haidt. And the only issue with it is that it's selectively choosing evidence to try and make a case. And look, we're all guilty of that. We're all guilty of, of siding with evidence that makes our case more, more perfectly. Anyway, in the discussion with Megan, we talk about that. So number one, I think if you're interested in some intellectual stimulation, that discussion with Jonathan Haidt and Richard Reeves is brilliant. Um, but caveat, I caveat it with they're giving a very partial side of the story and it's, it's not fully evidenced. Anyway, uh, hopefully we discuss enough about that here that you can see how the evidence of it is more nuanced. I have to tell you, I found this was dazzling. I was 10 minutes late to my following meeting as a result. Uh, it's just a, a truly brilliant discussion with between myself and Megan Wrights. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I'm so thrilled to have you here. I was, I was really taken with your article on employee activism and specifically on the themes that we're seeing now. But I wonder if to kick us off, if you could just introduce who you are and, and uh, what you specialise in, really. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so my name is Megan. I'm a professor of leadership and dialogue at Ashridge Holt uh, Business School. So what I'm interested in is in dialogue inside organisational systems. And by that, I mean, I'm really fairly obsessed with the habits that we have in what we talk about and then what we stay silent about and whose voices we listen to and whose voices we tend to discount or not even realise are there. So I'm interested in those kind of what I call conversational habits. But I'm also, it's a bit wider than that. My understanding of dialogue is a bit wider than that. It's how do we show up with one another inside organisational systems in a way where we, I suppose, find our voices and enable others to find their voices with a view to being more thoughtful, making better decisions. And really making sure our organisational spaces are, are places that we can flourish. So all of my research is, is really looking at uh, the consequences of the habits that we have as individuals, the consequences of the habits that we form in our teams and our organisations. And of course, it's 
it's a pretty uh, topical issue right now. Tell me this. You say it's topical. Has it increased? Are employees finding their voice more than ever before? Is it, it feels like they are, and it feels like maybe they're being denied their voice more than ever before. But what, what yeah. are the broad trends that you're seeing? Well, it's, it's probably not as clear cut as whether they're finding their voice or not finding their voice. They may be uh, they may be moving into different habits around what they choose to voice. And uh, what we might be seeing is some some trends towards employees challenging ways of doing things inside organisations. And in particular, um, as the work that we've done, I've done with my co-researcher, John Higgins, recently. In particular, we've got employees more willing to speak up about wider social and environmental issues inside organisations. And there's, you know, there's all sorts of forces and reasons why that trend seems to be increasing and why it might increase in the in the future, you know, um, not least because of the power of social media, the right. power of technology in collectively voicing issues, which, of course, reduces the risk in individuals speaking up. We've got organisations making many more purpose statements and under pressure from ESG shareholders. Yeah. Let me dive in there because this is really, yeah. uh, there's so many things. I'm, I, as you're going along, I think I need a question on that, I need a question. So let me sort of <laughs> interrupt and let's let's do these bit by bit. Please so do. firstly, one of the things that we're often told about younger people is that they don't have an interest in politics. They don't, but what you're saying actually is that, you know, that we're told they're not politically active. And, you know, it, it's definitely not my experience when I, one of the reasons why I adore TikTok is it's so full of polit- political opinion. You know, this audience that we're, we're meant to believe doesn't have a voice and doesn't have opinions it's so uh, filled full of it but so you tell me this is this a new thing that these audiences are getting a voice or has the the fact that firms are using these purpose statements and this this notion of positioning themselves as socially benign has that activated this what's the catalyst that's that's made this happen that it wouldn't have happened 10 or 15 years ago well, I think there's a. I think it's more a collection of things, a kind of constellation of forces that have just come together. So I don't know that it's one thing in particular, but millennials in the workforce is certainly one thing. I was reading today in the FT there was an article uh, that was. Do you think it's millennials or Gen Z? Because because I guess millennials goes up to like the age of 42, 43 now, doesn't it? The report that I was reading in in the FT today said you know eighty seven percent of millennials they were talking about wish to work for an organization that has corporate sustainability focus so and there is some research to suggest that millennials are less likely to give up their (laughs) social and environmental um, desires as they enter the workforce and as their career progresses so I think look on one side you've got potentially a generation of workers that are more politically engaged and expectant on bringing that into the workplace. You've got a technology platform that allows employees to speak up in quite powerful manners. You've got uh, leaders that have been willing to step out publicly partly because they're pressured by shareholders to make statements about stakeholder 
value rather than shareholder value. So they've come out and they've said, we care about this. And so our employees are sitting there going, okay, so what are you going to do? Right. <laughs> so so there's the employees that are sort of marking their homework a bit. Exactly. And But there's, I mean, there's so many other areas, Bruce. There's research that has also backed up diversity in the workplace. And so there's been obviously a big focus on diversity and inclusion. And that, of course, by definition, brings in different voices into the organisations and voices that are likely to see different perspectives and challenge things as well. And that, I suppose the final thing is that a particular organi- a particular industry sector that has been in the news a lot is the, uh, is the tech companies. Mm. And there is a different power dynamic in some of our organisations now where some employees hold quite a lot of power because of the specific talent that they have. And therefore, they come into organisations and they think to themselves, well, actually, I can speak up and not face perhaps the same risks that others have faced. Or actually, if I lose my job over this, take the worst case scenario, well, it doesn't really matter because there's a pile of other places that will take me. The whole constellation of, of, of forces that are leading to this. this kind yeah, of because let's dive in for, for a degree of specificity. There's actually a number of examples here. You know, um, we've seen tech firm employees not want their firms to work on military things, but we've seen, I think, most Specifically, as a, as a jumping off point here, we've seen Coinbase and now Basecamp, again, two tech firms. And, and I hope listeners forgive us using these tech firms as a, as a way to illustrate broader societal trends. I know, I know that a lot of people don't work in tech, but th- these themes are sort of being played out because it's such a public stage. Um, but the Coinbase and Basecamp both seem to create these rules. They, they latterly oppose the, impose these rules saying you are now no longer invited to talk about politics in a work environment. Do you want to, I mean, you've studied this. So do you want to just maybe articulate what other nuance there is to those stories and maybe explain yeah. what you think is going on there? Well, I'm glad you used that word nuance. Because mm. one thing I've noticed over the last week uh, and that debate around base camp in particular kind of pretty much exploded. And what I've noticed in the in the debate online is that it seems to have degenerated somewhat into an argument between as a leader, should you ban politics or let it run riot? There doesn't seem to be any kind of talk about the space of opportunity of different responses between those two. And also it's fair to say, you know, I don't have the truth of what happened at base camp and nobody does because there'll be multiple different perspectives on what was said and what were the implications and why it happened the way that it did. So I'll, I'll, I will take care in, you know, stepping into that place of diagnosing what went on there. But as you say, what it does do is it raises some really interesting questions that aren't just for the tech companies. They're much wider than that in that, you know, what is the leadership practice in relation to what what we might call wider social and environmental concerns. And, you know, the other thing we should point out with Basecamp, there's so many things to point out there. You know, how do you, we, we wrote a quite, we wrote an article for the Journal of um, the Royal Society of Medicine a couple of years ago, and, and the article title was called, If Whistleblowing is the Answer, Then Ask a Different Question. And you could say the same here. If banning is the answer, 
then we kind of really need to ask a different question. In other words, what leads us to get to the stage where a chief executive needs to kind of use their power in that kind of manner to direct or to try and lay down rules about what is said and what isn't said and that i think is a is a is a really is a really interesting question tell me this because the space is filled with incredibly articulate people who have positive theories so specifically what i mean is jonathan haidt so anyone who's seen jonathan haidt's work is that he's written a book in the last three or four years called The Coddling of the American Mind. And what he specifically does in that is he ascribes the era of the, the 2000s, anyone who was getting into their, their youth in the, two, the early 2000s, the, the late 90s, 2000s, he says, because they weren't allowed to play out, because they only did play that had parental control, they have been deprived of any adversity in their life. And as a consequence of that, they find any life experiences that are filled with adversity to be insufferable. So what he says is on campuses, the way that you articulate this, is that students want to kill any, what they regard as sort of toxic speech. They don't want people to say ideas that they find to be injurious or offensive to them. Anyway, I heard an interview with him last week, and I'll put it in the show notes, where he specifically talks about if he was going to rewrite that book today, he would include work. And he would say that, you know, as these Gen Zs are reaching work, they can't handle the bumps in the road that that life represents. I don't buy all of that. There's some really brilliant, captivating, provocative thought in it. And, you know, you aggregate it together and you give it a coherence. And The Coddling of the American Mind is a brilliant book. It's a brilliant book. I think the hypothesis he comes up with is convenient for him because what it effectively is, is a really well-articulated example of a very familiar trope, which is each generation views the, their successor generations with suspicion. They believe that somehow the next generation, unfortunately, haven't um, looked after the mantle they've been passed with the get care and attention that the, the elder generation would have given. And when I look at this, so the base camp example, you know, people are now saying, I saw one commentator last week saying, oh, yeah, younger kids, they just can't handle you know, the realities of work. I don't think it's that. But, and, and you seem to be suggesting it's not that. Do, do you think um, that we're seeing some yeah, misdirection I, here? Yeah, I think that you have to take a great deal of care in, in it sounds quite dismissive. You know, oh dear, they can't handle it. Yeah. Uh, that's why there's a problem. An argument in there is that there are groups of society who are now no longer willing to sit by and not speak up about things. And there are also people increasingly realising that what was taken for granted in the past was actually kind of privileged perspectives. Let me just go into that in a little bit more depth. One problem in kind of saying, you know, politics doesn't belong in the workplace is that, and we're neutral and we're apolitical, is when you go into that in depth, it's very tricky to see that it's feasible to be apolitical. You could argue that inaction on on various issues is as political a choice Mm. as action is. And now we might, what I see in my research is a growing awareness 
of the status quo being a political issue and the status quo being something that may serve particular people in positions of power and not others. So, you know, back to that question that you raised, perhaps there is also a force that says actually more of us are willing to A, be aware of some of these systemic dynamics and see them not as kind of normal or okay, and and actually be able to speak up uh, more about them and demand more on them. That's another kind of perspective in on this. And what we know, you know, what I know from my research, which is quite interesting in terms of leadership practice, is the more senior you are, the more optimistic, or if I was to be provocative, I would say deluded, you overestimate your listening skills, your approachability, and the degree to which people are speaking up on issues that matter to them. So you overestimate that. You tend to think, well, you know, no, things are good. People can talk around here. And you underestimate the challenges that employees might be facing. And uh, wrote an article with Ben Fuchs and again, John Higgins called, Do You Have Advantage Blindness? So in other words, when when we're when we're in positions of power, we often have a number of kind of labels or titles associated with us that convey status and authority in our particular context. And when we have those titles and labels, we're sometimes the last people to notice the impact that they have. It's not until you don't have those titles and labels that you can kind of look at them and go, oh my goodness, they make a real mm. difference as to whether I can voice in this system. And so the issue is, is it going back to, again back to Basecamp and Coinbase, you've got leaders that are very often, as many are in organizations, still situated very strongly in the strong leader trope. You know, the leader knows best. The leader must be under, you know, in control. I must make decisions on this. But they're making those decisions from what we might call a, a, a fairly blind position where they're in a particular bubble. And, and perhaps, who knows, I wasn't there, but perhaps some of that was going on in base camp where, you know, you've got a chief executive that, that you know, it almost inevitably thinks, right, I need to step in. I need to take control in inverted commas. That's what I'm expected to do. I'll go in and I'll make, uh, you know, I'll try and put down some rules. But actually, perhaps a level of inquiry and a kind of real, an antennae that picks up, you know, what, how do my employees feel about this issue? And before I go in there, with a policy change, how do I just check out what I can't see? How do I check out what I just have taken for granted and that's just about to, you know, pull the rug from under my, my feet? Can I do that inquiry place? Because otherwise, you know, what you're doing when you're laying down rules like that is to use maybe some language from TA, transactional analysis, you're coming in as a kind of critical parent mm. and you're laying down a rule. And of course, the, the, the danger in that is that there'll be a fairly strong push back on, on that. So take care with using or trying to use your power in that way. Is the reason why some firms are seeking to remove themselves from this discourse is the fact that 
there's actually some contradictions at the very heart of it. Uh, specifically, I'll give you an example that I used to work at one organization and the, the organization, uh, it was Twitter, right? The, the organization suggested that it was broadly apolitical for, for very nature of being a platform, but it was very strongly in favor of marriage equality. It was probably the, the, the one thing that it had a stance on. And someone said, my religion means that that is injurious to my religion. And another person um, said that the, the volume of discourse that's going on here is internally, is I think it, it devalues conservative opinions. He said, you know, even though the company doesn't have an opinion on things, all my colleagues are voicing things which suggest that conservative opinions aren't valued here. Is the issue that some firms are looking at this going, yeah, we can't square that circle. We, we can't allow all opinions to matter because some of them are in opposition to each other. And yeah. because we don't want to get into something that's just immensely complex, we're now going to say we exist in a zero politics environment. Is that how we've got here? And if it is, what's the solution to that? Uh, yeah, great example. Um, yes, absolutely. I've spoken personally to many leaders in the last few weeks that are, you know, <laughs> frankly terrified to go into this sort of territory. And rather the kind of stepping back and saying, I know what, we'll just not go there at all, which is is a valid, you know, may well be a valid response. That the the objection I suppose I have to it is perceiving that not going there is therefore neutral and apolitical. Mm. So that's what I would challenge. I would say, you know, no, 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 you can't get out of it like that. Because if you don't kind of, it, particularly if it's a stand that you decide not to take, you can't, you can't, you know, leaders can't take a stand on absolutely everything that's out there. You do need to accept that your choices as an individual about what, where to place your energy, but also as an organisation, it is inherently political. Our workplaces and our organisations are so full of the desire, and in a way it's come through in that question of yours, the desire for what's the right answer? Mm. How do we keep this clean? How do we kind of get through this in a non-messy way? Could you please give me the you know, five steps that mean that we'll have a political conversation and it will be it will be fine? And as you pointed out, you know, this is seriously messy territory. One of the questions comes to rather than I think, it, it, you know, rather than going down that route where you start trying to build rules and regulations all around you, which I think, you know, rarely work because it just pushes things underground. How do you create an environment where it's feasible for people to have dialogue? Now, I don't mean to I'm not going to be idealistic here. You know, I'm not saying dialogue's the answer. There's some real questions about how do we equip and prepare people in the workplace to show up with one another in a way that there is some curiosity, there is some appreciation of difference, there is a desire to learn. And that's also the case with managers and leaders. You know, we've, we've trained managers and leaders for decades. I'm very familiar with the business school world as well. You know, we've trained leaders to kind of go in and advocate and know the answer. And actually, you know, in the social media world, I think that's what we're all learning at the moment is, you know, we're, we're, we're coming in and we're throwing our opinions at one another. What is a leader's role in actually sitting with 
complexity, sitting with difference, being curious about. And, you know, that's, I don't think, it's not an area that we focused on perhaps because we didn't need to, mm. but I certainly think it's an area that that we're going to have to focus on going forward is in how yeah. do our leaders facilitate these sorts of spaces. Because what we seem to be seeing in these trends, you know, the Google work, walkout sits as part of it as well, a fifth or a quarter of the whole of the Google work, workforce walking out over, I think, over perceived hypocrisy, perceived flag-waving hypocrisy that, you know, the, the organisation was very willing to use the, to acquire kudos from espousing certain causes but actually, when it came down to matters of substance, those voices weren't being expressed in the boardroom. So specifically, one of the catalyzing moments of the Google walkout was that a executive who was accused of very serious sexual misconduct was given a $50 million severance, the, the, the executive behind Android, and was given a vast settlement. But there were a number of other contradictions. And I think voices within the organization have continued to say these not respect paid inside the organization we we are preaching diversity but actually it doesn't that diversity isn't being reflected in decision making at the top level of the organization mm, and it mm. seems to be that the story of that adjacent to coinbase adjacent to basecamp is that there seems to be people are holding their organizations to account for hypocrisy you know don't write five books about how you've solved workplace culture and then Actually, when it comes to these very nascent moments of us trying to discuss these things internally, you silence or dissent, you know, the base camp story. It seems to be that the organizations are being held to account for hypocrisy. Would you see it like yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. So part of our work is, uh, over the last year, we've identified a range of responses that organizations and individual leaders have on issues such as the one at, at Google. Uh, and actually, it's quite helpful, perhaps, for the for the listeners to think to themselves, you know, what's my, if I had to generalise, what's my organisational response? And also, what's my personal response? So at one end of the scale, you've kind of got leaders where, you know, there's a non-existent response. I've, I've interviewed some chief executives and mentioned climate change or diversity, and they are just utterly baffled. They kind of, it's right. nowhere on the agenda, got, not got a clue. And then there's some uh, leaders that uh, whose response Responses to try and suppress and to try and stop kind of particular issues being talked about. One step up from that is what I call facadism. So that's, you know, we're saying all the good things publicly, but there's no action underneath those words. And that's the kind of hypocrisy area that you're talking about. There's one stage above that is we call it kind of defensive engagement. So there's organizations where who have kind of gone, particularly with diversity and inclusion, oh, all right, then what's the least I have to do? You know, so they're engaging, but it's only because they feel they have to. There's then dialogic engagement, which is uh, quite a different step where leaders are knowing that they don't know and that's the kind of inquiry area. And then there's some organisations that stimulate activism. They recruit activists. They, they want people to step up and be vocal. So there's this whole kind of range of responses. And we've done a lot of work in, in terms of, well, why and how do organisations choose each of those responses? One of the interesting things uh, is that if I interview a range of people inside one organisation, Guess what? Leaders are much more likely to say 
that their response is in what I would call proactive areas. In other words, dialogue or, yeah, we stimulate, we actively encourage it. And the more junior you are, the more you are likely to look at action and say, looks like facadism to me. Mm. So again, we kind of go back to that, you know, taking care that the leaders aren't in a, in a kind of bubble, you know, and what they think is engagement is not being experienced in that. And underneath all of that, of course, is a level of that ambiguous word, trust. When my leader comes out, I spoke to a chief executive yesterday and we were talking about Black Lives Matter and their response to Black Lives Matter. And his response had been to come out and say, actually, we're not making a public statement. We haven't got our own house in order. Right. And, you know, you can make a statement like that as a chief executive. And if there's a level of kind of trust in the workplace and employees think, OK, I think he really does intend to do something. I think he's had a bit of a shock here and he means to do something. OK, fine. Versus the kind of if there isn't that trust and if you haven't kind of proved yourself on the last issue and done something about it, of course, that's when you get accused of hypocrisy. That's right. when you get accused of sort of saying, well, you know, you said last time you were going to do something about it and you didn't. So I think that, you know, you know, what's our culture? How, what is the levels of trust? And are leaders, do leaders have that antennae that I talked to you about earlier? Do you know, how can they burst themselves out of the bit of a bubble that they, they might find themselves in? But if I'm reading you right, you're saying that the idea that you can opt into this or opt out of this is an illusion. Because the very idea that you opt out of this is a, is a political decision. This is a reality of the world that we're now moving towards. A, a, gr- a, a greater sense of environmental and social understanding is a reality of the world and the workplaces we're going to be in. And so unless you embrace the messiness that it will occasionally represent, you're committing yourself to a, a lie. You know, these organisations banning politics, it's its not remotely going to happen. But we, we need to more embrace the idea that this is going to be a bit of a mess, but we're in a process moving along it. Have I understood your thought on this correctly? Pretty much. You know, you can't opt out because, you know, when you go into it, what on earth counts as political and not political? Yeah. And both Coinbase and Basecamp were saying, well, you can talk about activist issues if they're in service of our mission. And like on the face of it, you kind of go, oh, right. OK, OK, well, that's clear. And then you go into it and you go, well, hang on a second. How on earth do you draw the line between that's OK to talk about because it's got something to do with our mission and that's not. And of course, you know, what I was talking to the wonderful Ruchika Tulshan, uh, who wrote the book, The Diversity Advantage. And she was saying, you know, activism is in the eye of the beholder. You know, what might appear to a leader to be kind of talking about issues that are not, you know, shouldn't be talked about and they don't have any relevance well, actually, if you go to that person that's talking about them, they're like, well, it's all very, it might not be relevant to you, but this is an issue of survival. This is an issue day to day for me. There's no no leaving it at the door as I come into the workplace, you know, and and that's, I think, something that that leaders, I think, are waking up to this, this kind of like, actually, my perspective on the world may be somewhat 
limited. And that means with a strengthening employee voice, that means it's going to be very tricky for me to stay in that kind of neutral, in inverted commas, zone. I'm going to have to step forward and engage. That doesn't mean I need to solve it. I can't because I don't know. But this is one thing that I I need to come in with my ears wide open and with some curiosity, with a willingness to support and an empathy, you know, actually having an eye out for what what might my what might the experience be of my employees. And that I think is a different challenge to one that we've we've focused on before, certainly when we've been teaching and training leaders. It's really interesting. I mean, obviously your job is training leaders and sort of helping these people. But when I've been in groups of leaders and they've obviously seen me as someone adjacent to them in sort of demography. So they've they've said things to me and they say things like, oh, it's so woke now. Oh, it's exhausting. And of course, these are, you know, people of a certain age and uh, they say, oh, it's so woke now. Work, it's so politically correct. And what effectively they're saying is, my life was very easy before, and the privilege that I had before was I never had to even consider it. And now I'm being reminded of my privilege and need to be careful about the way that I'm expressing myself. But unfortunately, because they're in a position of power, they're being heard or that, that, that is still having an influence. And that's an interesting thing that strikes me about your work is that you are training these people really to break themselves out of these routines and habits they might have formed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's got to be take care with it. It's It doesn't mean that you've had an easy life, you know, you, just because we have the titles and labels of, of privilege, you know, that's not to make a, you know, too yeah. general, you know, a generalized statement yes. about that. But it is to enable people to to sit up and kind of notice that their experience of the world and perspective of the world is not the one that is shared by others. And if they are going to lead well, and if they are going to reap the rewards of people speaking up, this is the other thing is that, you know, many organizations have had a particular push on asking employees to speak up over the last few years. And then there seems to be a little bit of a surprise when when employees have kind of gone, okay, then. Let's, uh, should we talk about executive pay? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And there's a bit of a like, oh, no, 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 no. Could you just speak up about problems and really good ideas? But could you leave everything else aside? It doesn't, it, you know, obviously it doesn't work like that. If we're to create spaces where we can, you know, to speak the business language here for a second, if we want spaces that are agile and innovative, where we can challenge one another, you know, perhaps we need to start getting concerned if we can't have some of these tricky conversations at work, because, you know, I wonder whether that's a bit of, as you might call it, the canary in the coal mine. You know, if we mm. can't have a conversation where we feel differently about things, does that signal that we are unable to listen and learn from one another? And if it does, we've got a limited shelf life because mm. you certainly need that capacity if you're to be agile and innovative going forward. We kind of run out of time, and I feel like we could talk about these things for a long time. If you were going to give us a perspective of what you'd say we need to watch out for next, how do you, how do you see this unfolding and evolving? I think that the forces towards 
workplaces where employees are going to speak up um, and expect to be heard are probably increasing. Not everywhere. This is a real, you know, obviously there are great cultural differences as well. Uh, you know, we've, we've been talking with a very particular Western European American kind of stance on this. And, you know, there are many different perspectives in on this. Our leaders, I think, need to acquire some quite different, I, I, they're not even skills. It's more of a kind of philosophy mm. <laughs> going forwards. It's an orientation whereby the, you know, strong leader trope, the I know best and I need to be in control. I think that's the thing that will continue to be really challenged. And that requires leaders to be able to step into places where they can be curious, learn, and be interested, and even, you know, invite difference. And I don't underestimate how uncomfortable that mm. can feel. So a question I hold is, you know, how do we help those spaces in organizations where we can begin to have room for dialogue, particularly given that most of our organizations are just centers where we are so busy that we hardly have a chance to yeah. pause, show up, inquire and learn and have the space that we need to to do that well. Those are the questions maybe I would leave the listener with is, you know, what does this, what does it mean for leadership and what we count as good leadership going forward? How do we prepare people for this? And how do we all create the spaces at work where we, I suppose, which are just a bit more humane, where we can flourish? And as I said, that requires spaces for dialogue. I find that discussion dazzling and and, and I'm going to give all of the, the articles that you've written recently are in the show notes for, for listeners if they uh, if they want to find out more. I'll also include your social media. I see that you're, you're uh, active on Twitter. Megan, I'm so immensely grateful for you taking the time to chat to us and helping us to, I think, try and uh, cut through the noise and see exactly the signal of what's going on there. So thank you so much for, for your time today. Thank you so much, Bruce. Thank you. 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thank you, Megan. Megan writes, and I've given a shout out to all of her articles and her social media in the show notes. Brilliant, I thought. And and actually, she's tackling issues that I think it would be very easy for a business audience, you know, C-suite, the bosses, to not have to confront. And uh, I think because she she makes the case so brilliantly, I, I just, like I say, I was dazzled by it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for listening. As ever, I'll give a little shout out to the newsletter. Uh, the newsletter reaches over 10,000 people with just stuff of what's happening in, in the world of work culture, in the world of, of work. You find some of the stuff that I've found most interesting. It's just a great resource. And there's quite a nice community of people just hitting reply and sending me little things that they, they find of interest. So uh, by all means, do sign up to that. You'll find that at the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.com. So grateful for your company today. I've been Bruce Aisley. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.